This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The sermon text is from Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness to this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning I'd like to tell you a story about one of the most courageous men I know. His name is Janarunjan Dasgupta, but his buddies called him J.R. The story takes place in the 1930s. i, I got to stop here. It kind of reminds me of Dallas, for those of you who are really old. J.R.? Okay, sorry. This story takes place in the 1930s during the independence movement of the British-occupied India. Tensions were beginning to mount and escalate between the middle class and intellectual leaders of India and the British occupiers. J.R. is in his early 20s, and he had a great job with Jessup Industries, a notable industrial group of that time in the world. Part of his responsibilities had him take train rides back and forth from New Delhi, the capital of India, and Calcutta, at that time the center of operations for Jessup, India's largest and most influential city. JR's prominent role had gave him the opportunity to be on the first-class train cart for the eight-hour journey between Delhi and Calcutta. Indian presence on that first-class train cart was typically kind of rare, and it was typically reserved for the British upper crust. This evening, it was particularly sparse. There was J.R., a young Indian couple, seemingly middle class and newly married, and two British officers. As the train ride went into the late hours of that evening, the British officers were quite taken with the young lady in their presence. Their comments were getting more forward and brazen as the evening progressed into the wee hours of the night. It became quite clear that these officers had ill intentions for this young lady. It also became clear that this husband had no plans to stand up for his wife or engage these would-be assailants, most likely out of fear for his life and future. J.R., on the other hand, would demonstrate over the whole of his life a courage and strength to do the right thing, and this was the first of many difficult decisions lying ahead of him. J.R., with as much humility as he could muster, asked the officers 
to show the young couple a little respect and to leave them alone. The two officers ignored this young Indian professional, most likely junior to them in age. At that point, J.R. stood up and placed himself between the couple and the officers and gently, humbly bowing before them, asked the officers to remember their honor, their code of ethics, and take up seating in a different part of the first-class cabin. These officers were now getting annoyed with this young professional and advanced towards him with every intention to dispatch of him in the most convenient manner possible. To their dismay, J.R. dispatched of them in haste. These two officers found themselves totally humiliated, unable to speak and move, never taking such a severe beating in their lives. Words of J.R.'s heroism quickly spread throughout the train. A hero is born. Someone finally stood up to the imperial forces of Britain and saved the dignity of India's children. Uh, the roar could be felt throughout the train, and J.R. expected Indian army soldiers who scattered throughout the third-class train to eventually make their way forward and to arrest him, but no one came. The morning came, and again, the train was entering the train station. The two officers were now awake, kept themselves still silent, showing absolutely no signs of aggression or conversation. As the train came to its final stop, a huge crowd had gathered outside the first-class train cart. At this point, J.R. just knew there was a detachment from the British Army just waiting to take him off to jail, and he quietly resigned himself to a long life in jail, but seeing the gratitude in the face of the young couple, it meant enough for him to empower him for the hardship that lied ahead. But to J.R.'s surprise, hundreds of Indians awaited his departure from the train. They quickly hoisted him on their shoulders, and they celebrated his victory as they marched him out of the train station. A new train had been formed, a sea of beige, as they carried their heroes safely outside the train station. And this man, J.R., was safe. I was four years old when I heard the story for the first time. I've always been captivated by the courage and heroism of my grandfather. I never grew tired of listening to this story. Every two to three years when I would go to India, there he'd be, and he'd fill my heart with stories and I love to comb each story for details to add to the movie reel that will be playing in the back of my mind as he told the story over and over and over. I'm 39 years old now. I'm just as inspired by the strength, the courage, the stoutness of my grandfather. This week in City Bible Reading, our initiative to read through the Bible together, I saw that same courage and strength in so many men. There was David, there was Stephen, there was Peter, there was Joab, there was David's mighty men, full of courage and zeal and strength for their God. As I read these passages, much to my shame, I, like many of you, am not defined by this courage and strength. Rather, when I look at how I lead my wife, love my kids, engage my friends, work with leaders at our church, I see in my life hesitancy, timidity, weakness, and fear. Think about it. This week, like me, how many times did you avoid waiting to the pains and the sin, the sorrows, the patterns of weakness, the frustrations of your spouse if you're married? I didn't engage at times because the cost would be too high to my comfort and my need to be in control. How many times did you pass up on the opportunity to enter the pains and sin patterns and the frustrations and weakness of your community? How many times did you pass up on the opportunity to encourage or rebuke your friend to, to take the conversation to a deeper level. 
Even though you could see how sin is waging war on them and bringing damage to her soul, how many times did you not engage, again, a desire for comfort or for not wanting to appear foolish or ill-equipped to love your friend? I know I have. How many times did you pass the opportunity to do the right thing at work, whether to say or do something difficult, to take one for the team, to redirect an unfruitful conversation, to point someone to Jesus, to challenge someone respectfully in authority above you? Joshua is at a crossroads in his life. He's old. He's not young. He's realistic. He's not idealistic. His mirror, his hero, his mentor in life, the man who was probably more a father to him than his own father, was dead, along with his entire generation except for two others. And so now Joshua's the old guy, and he has all these youngsters around him, and he must lead God's people into the promised land. He was a spy 40 years ago. He knows firsthand the great cities with the majestic walls and the impressive armies that he must encounter. And he's understandably afraid, he's hesitant, he's overwhelmed, and God is personally inviting him into the next chapter of his life to tackle it with courage and strength. And three times he tells Joshua to have courage and strength. As we get to overhear this conversation and God invites us into it, He's inviting us to look at our threats and obstacles in our lives, to advance his kingdom with the same courage and strength that he's inviting Joshua to exhibit. This passage three times encourages us to have courage and strength, and as we look around those three verses, we'll quickly see there's three ways for us to have courage and strength. They are in verse 6, by owning God's promises, in verse 7, by knowing God's law, and verse 9, by leaning into God's presence own his promises, know his law, lean into his presence. First, let's look at owning God's promises. From the very outset of this conversation, God overwhelms Joshua with his promises. He says in verse 2, he's going to give him the land. You and all these people into the land that I'm giving them. Verse 3, every place in the land, every place the sole of your feet will tread upon, I have given to you. Verse 5, we'll see that he's going to be unstoppable. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life that he'll be not alone, again, in verse 5, so I will be with you, and that he will not fail, again, verse 5, I will not leave you or forsake you. These are not abstract truths for Joshua to consider in his moleskin journal, drinking Starbucks coffee. These are promises made directly for him to own and immediately apply to his life. Look at verse 6. The first of the three, be strong and courageous, is be strong and courageous, For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. God is telling Joshua to be strong because of his oaths, his promises, his swearing, the work that he has done and promised. Joshua immediately has a scale in his hands. He's like in a market. What is he going to weigh more? What is he going to give more weight to, consider more highly, make more dominant in his thoughts and emotions? Will it be, on one hand, his fears, his obstacles, his sins, his shortcomings, and the situation he's in? Or on the other hand, the clear promises of God? Many of us find ourselves in that very similar situation. On the one hand, we see our obstacles, our trials, our sinful patterns, our shortcomings, and our challenges, and the lack of resources, and our lack of faith and energy and hope. Yet on the other hand, we barely glimpse at the beautiful, glorious promises of God. 
So many of us have regularly given up on the power of the cross, the power of God's love and promises, and have given more weight to the obstacles and sins in our lives. Think about it. We get bogged down in our issues. Some of us in this room have eating disorders, and they cripple us. Or we get bogged down in distorted views of our body, which is the very image of God, where things have become too big and too small. Think about it. Some of us an unquenchable appetite to please the people around us, starting with our spouses, our heroes, our kids, our parents, our bosses. Or other of us are overwhelmed with trying to make it in life, and because we aren't making it, because we're so overwhelmed, because we're so ill-equipped for what's ahead of us, we withdraw from it all. Or other of us can't shake off that low-grade depression that makes everything mute and black and white. Where others of us are driven to succeed at work, we put everything in the altar of succeeding at work that we, might find, that we might find validation for ourselves. And even though we're killing ourselves, we keep doing it because our very life depends upon it. I don't know anything about that. Some of us, uh, <laughs> your identity as a mom is totally shaped by how you perceive others view your children. So their success is your success and their your failures or your failures. Or other of us are bogged down because our parents have set up an awful tape in our head where we are never good enough and we're constantly a disappointment. And then others of us in the room have habitual sins like pornography, cutting ourselves, not eating, eating to cope with life, drinking just a little too much to get by, lying, gossiping, condemning ourselves, and we have no hope of kicking any of these habits. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we've given up hope in the power of the gospel to change us. We don't even consider taking these burdens, patterns, and sins to Jesus. We functionally become friends with these grand obstacles and trials in our life. And we don't even consider combing the scriptures for the many promises God has made to us. We've forgotten that in the gospel we are no longer in bondage to sin and death, but have a power greater in us working to change us. And so what happens to many of us is we've grown cynical and hard of heart. Yet we're in a healthy church, so we don't want to walk around cynical, so we cover it up being delightful young yuppies, cool, or learned, well-minded theological Presbyterians. But we often mask the greater problems of our lives. Jesus is that greater Joshua. Look at his courage and strength for you. He was willing to leave the riches and splendor of glory of heaven above to come and rescue us. And he tread life upon this earth. In every place he set his foot, the kingdom of heaven advanced. Darkness vanished, light propelled. He did everything he could to lean into his father and his strength and give him glory in all that he did. And in that, he was righteous, and all that righteousness was stored up for us. But Jesus came for a very specific purpose, to be abandoned, to be forsaken, to have the Father reject him, to have the wrath and the justice we deserve for all our sin and shortcomings to be poured upon him so that he might pay for our sins on the cross and give us that beautiful righteousness. But he did all of that to be raised again from the dead, to send on high. Why? to give us the Holy Spirit, to save us, to seal us, to secure us, that we would never be alone, that we would never be abandoned, and that we'd have a power within us greater than anything that we would counter in the world. Jesus did not die and rise again to the Father to leave you and forsake you and to leave you in your present state. But he died that you might share in his glory. He died that he might give you the Holy Spirit. He died that you might share in his courage and strength now. 
God is inviting you to own his promises in the scriptures. And not only own those promises, own the one who gives you those promises and to give him the highest weight possible. In addition to owning these promises, God's inviting you to know his law. Again, knowing his law. God will knows it'll take much more than his promises to help Joshua have courage and strength for the battles and tests before him. He needs more than God's promises. He needs God's law. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God invites Joshua to know his law. Twice he's told to be careful to do the law, to keep the law, to watch the law. He's told to meditate on the law day and night, to have his heart so saturated with the law of God that it comes out of him in a way that in verse 8 that it never ceases to come out of him, in a manner in verse 7 that it controls and guides his actions and he never turns from it to the right and left. It's an invitation to know his beauty and his character and to be totally captivated by him. You see, the word know has such deep connotations for intimacy. For example, the word know in Scripture is sometimes constituted a significant amount of physical intimacy. For example, in the city of Bible reading, David knew Bathsheba, but he didn't know the, the gal at the end of Second Samuel. So, you know, you're like, okay, so he didn't know her. That's a good thing because he wasn't married to her. There's a huge difference between knowing a lot about wine and studying it from a distance and enjoying a glass of wine one evening and experiencing its power within you. There's a difference between knowing about Shipyard Brewery in Winter Park and there's a difference between going there one evening and enjoying a craft beer with some fish and chips which I've yet to do. God's law, his word, is to be intimately known and experienced deep within. Joshua would have been tempted to lean into his resources at that time to fight the battle ahead. Israel needed chariots. It needed ramparts. It needed siege machinery. It needed to be schooled in modern fighting tactics. If they're going to wage war on the greatest empires of their time, they've got to be prepared for it. And God is making it clear that the battle was his. The war was his, the campaign was his, and the one thing Joshua needed to do was focus on him. For Joshua and us, the invitation, <clears throat> this challenges us to see what we really turn to, and for me and for you, it exposes our unbelief. Some of us, in the face of the biggest obstacles of our lives, what do we do? We withdraw into movies, work, relationships, distractions, because we, don't, we know we don't have what it takes. Others of us try harder and step up and throw ourselves into the problem. Personally, I feed off the anxiety of being exposed or seen as a failure to get me through the next big task. The tear of the urgent helps me. The pressure last minute gets there, and I so don't want to be a failure and a fraud. That anxiety empowers me to do my next task. And then I move from task to task to task. Never along. Enjoy the presence and the peace of God. What God commands for us creates massive tension for us all, because very few of us believe that the law of God is what we truly need in the midst of our obstacles and sin patterns. 
Who among us totally saturates themselves in God's Word? Who among us, day and night, obsesses over the Word of God that it may burn brightly in them, that it might burn brightly outside of them? I love that the leadership of New City has created, fostered, and encouraged the CBR initiative. Doing it well means it covers your mornings with God's Word, and it propels you into the day for conversation and maybe your evening as well. But let's be honest. It's a starting place. It's not even the full scope of our dream of the City Bible Reading Initiative. It's not the end goal. It's a starting place. So how does it happen? How do we get to a life where we're saturated in God's Word? Peter Drucker wrote this book called The Effective Executive. It's dated now. It was written in the 70s, but I still think it's a classic for a would-be business executive. And he has four pages that have haunted me ever since I've read it, and they weren't even a main heading or point. But he had this section on post-priorities and posteriorities. So if you're going to be great with your big, audacious goals, if you're going to aim high, if you're going to have goals that are perfectly aligned for you, then there's really important things, good things, that you should do that now you need to make posteriorities, meaning you have to choose no longer to do certain tasks and throw away certain objectives in your life and stick to that decision if your priorities are really going to be priorities. Because all of us have too many good things in our life, and for us to be great at something, and God's calling us all to be great when it comes to his word, is to give up the good and <laughs> for the great. Jim Collins, who wrote the classic book, Good to Great, he had this article related to that called A Stop Doing List. Again, if you want to be great at something, there's things you have to stop doing. I'm like you. I want that magic pill from the movie Limitless, but it doesn't exist. I want to be able to do everything and be God and not have to rely on anyone, but it doesn't work that way. And God's calling us to make this concrete, to have a life where we're saturating intimate knowledge of him in his word, which means we have to say no to things that are good, that even matter to us. I'm horrible at this. I feel like a fraud even preaching this right now. Will you work with me in community? Will you go to your home groups, and for those of you who are leaders in the church D groups, to figure this out in community, how to be saturated in God's word? Why does this matter? Look, twice God mentions in two verses that you will have good success, prosperity, if you know his word. Biblically defines sex success, oh gosh, prosperity in God's will is dependent, that too, that's another sermon. <laughs> Biblically defined success and prosperity in God's will is dependent on our intimate knowledge of him. Jesus means to burn in you brightly, so that as you meditate in his word, you bright, burn brightly for him in the world. To the degree we know him intimately in his laws, to the degree the world will know his glory and grace. Again, if you want to have courage and strength, we need to own God's promises, know his law, and lean into his presence. Again, lean into his presence. The very presence of God was very tangible for Joshua. There was a tabernacle, the tent they carted around that held God's presence. There was a priest that represented God before him. There was the manna he experienced for 40 years coming up every morning. There was the cloud that led them by night, day and a fire that led them by night. There was the Red Sea where God's God destroyed the armies of Egypt. There was a rock that Moses tapped and water came from. There was all the amazing stuff that happened around Mount Sinai. His experiences are so strong that he could not deny the power and the provision and the promises of God. 
But look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thankfully, we can relate to Joshua. We have New City Worship, where we've experienced God in song and musing and the preaching God has regularly delivered through TED. We've been in home groups where we've done life with other believers and we experience Jesus in the midst of two believers colliding together. Uh, as, as men and women have progressed in the, the life of this church, you've ended up in discipleship groups. So you've experienced that same power and joy. But in addition to these things, as we lean into God in our fear, we can undeniably experience his presence and his power. Like Joshua, we know what it means to be frightened and to be dismayed. We know what it feels to have dread and to tremble. We know what it means to live off of stress and anxiety more than God's presence. In the last few months, God's been gracious to me to open my eyes to the fact that I live like an orphan. I live on my own. I assume it's up to me. I assume people really don't want to help me. I really have a hard time asking for help, not because I don't see my weaknesses and problems, because I don't want to bother people and I feel like a hindrance. This makes sense of me if you were to understand my story and my childhood and my dynamic with my parents. But because of this, I know much more of my fears than I do God's presence, much to my shame. As I thought about and prayed about many of you this week, I see those same tendencies in many of you. It's rare for you to live like children of God, one who knows the Father's care, enjoys the Son's love and intercession, experiences the Spirit's power and presence. A few weeks ago, Jacob, my 10-year-old son, had a basketball game in the league he was playing in. There's a fair few men down. They only had eight or nine to begin with. There's only five of them, and they're playing a team that they're clearly better than. Jacob was the primary ball handler this week because the other point guard was out of town. So he found himself being pounded, harassed, fouled often by the opposing team. And a lot of those fouls went uncalled because the team, the ref, was taking it easier on the other team because they were getting dominated on both sides of the ball. Between the third and fourth period, I saw it coming. Jacob headed to the sidelines frustrated, overwhelmed, angry, and he started to get emotional and tears started rolling down his face. The injustice of being fouled over and over and over and having no call was getting to him. I'm not exactly sure what happened next. I don't remember thinking about doing this. I just did it. I popped up, left the bleachers, hopped right down to the court, walked over to Jacob, grabbed him by the face, and I said, I know. I know, I know, I know. I know they're not calling their fouls. I know they're beating you up out there. I know this is really hard and difficult. And then as he kind of settled down, I shot straight with him. You're going to get hacked like this for the rest of your life as a point guard. <laughs> You're not going to get the right calls at all. This is your lot for running the team. This is what it means to be a point guard. You can do this. I totally believe in you. Forget about the refs. Forget about the other players. You go out there, have fun. Just play your game. So I left Jacob to his thoughts, and I wandered off. I found my seat again, and I saw him collect his thoughts. I saw him wipe away his tears, and I saw him pull up his Gatorade, and he drinks some. And if we learn anything from last week's sermon, it matters what's inside of you, and Jacob had plenty of Gatorade inside of him. <laughs> the next eight minutes was a sight to behold. My little buddy had the best basketball period of his life. He was driving, dishing out masterful assists, making layups in traffic, dribbling on two or three opponents at the time, dribbling with seamless effort, hitting huge free throws when he got hacked and fouled, and shutting down the opposing ball handlers. He was clearly the best player on the court, and he was clearly having fun. Sam Sam. <laughs> right. 
That moment was a beautiful picture of how we may experience the presence of God. How do we get to experience the Father's watchful care, the intercession and love of Jesus, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? By crying out and playing. Crying out. It takes courage to engage your fears and disappointment. It takes courage to not hide them in a fake facade, but wear them on your sleeve and then take them to your Father. It takes courage to face that which is haunting you and to do it with humility. But you have to play as well. To the degree we're willing in our weakness to go to our loving Heavenly Father, talk about our weaknesses, cast ourselves upon Him, our rock and shelter, and then go out in faith in those various trials to the degree we experience His presence, His power, His provision. It's in playing we experience God in undeniable ways that fuels us to lean into life with courage and strength because we can look back at our track record and say, I was weak, but he was strong. I was weak, but he was strong. And we know God. And, and, and we are leaning in to his presence. Joshua means the same thing Jesus does. And in a sense, Jesus was sort of named after Joshua. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of courage that Joshua points forward to. Think about his life. Just the little things he did. Twice he walks into a temple and he, he removes everyone from the core of Gentiles because he turned, they turned a room of prayer into a room of commerce. Over and over and over he confronted the religious authorities of his time and he said stuff like wonderful stuff like, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tomb. Instead of protecting himself, he opened himself to death. He opened himself to destruction because he refused not to love the people that were in his path. He's an amazing picture of courage and strength. This righteousness that Jesus exhibited is ours. It has been credited to us. This is how the Father sees us as courageous and strong. But this is a righteousness that's now alive in us. Jesus lives in us to give us that courage and strength. Jesus is that lion that's roaring within us that we have caged, that he is begging for you to let loose. What God is commanding Moses to do is what he's commanding you to do. Let him loose. Be courageous. Be strong. He's living in you. Let him roll. Lean into that strength and courage that it's inside of you because Jesus died for it and the Spirit's there to give it to you. You are not on a train ride harassed by sin and death, but Jesus, your victor, has crushed sin and death once and for all. And you are now free to share and take advantage of the courage and strength that he has for you. He wants you to be strong in him in your weakness that you may experience his power and so the world might experience it as well. One of the things I love about this church is just full of kids. Where are they going to watch the next 20 years? I pray it's men and women who in their weakness will lean into the courage and strength of God and they'll see their parents and their parents' friends lean into God's presence, know God's law, own God's promises, and live in such courageous ways they can't deny the existence and power of God and they serve him just as courageously. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are timid and weak and hesitant. We've often failed at the great challenges and obstacles put before us because we've tried to do them in our own strength. And we know what it means to be consumed with our own thoughts and fears and anxieties and appearances and control. 
more than your love, your promises, your provision, your law. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Jesus, the one who loves us, the one who's rescued us, the one who is our hope and rest. And would you give us the ability to lean in on him, that we may experience his strength, and in his strength have courage to live beautifully for him. We pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.